Well, there goes the maiden's prayer. I wonder how I'll act. It's like diving overboard. You never know how the water's going to be till you hit it. So nervous. Say, if I could look like you in a wedding gown, I'd be a bigamist. Come on. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, which by now you should know is a podcast where we watch every film ever nominated for Best Picture from the very first awards to someday the present year. Once we've watched all the films in a particular year, we will tell you if the Academy chose correctly. This week, we're in the 1931 to 1932 Academy Awards season, and we just finished watching Bad Girl. Yeah, it is a movie that's titled Bad Girl for some reason. It is definitely inexplicable. <laughs> There's like one scene where the the male lead really, and the movie to its credit, like immediately discredits him, but talks shit about what a bad girl she is. And that's it. That's the only bad thing about this girl in the whole movie. Yeah, I I, I mean, I think it would be more accurately titled Bad Marriage. Yeah. Is it Outliers? It's probably Outliers, the Malcolm Gladwell book that has this whole chapter on a dude who can tell if your marriage is going to fall apart in like five minutes. And the way he tells is whether you can effectively communicate with each other or not. And boy, did I think about that a lot in this movie, where two married people never effectively communicate for a single <laughs> fucking moment of their marriage. And yet somehow their marriage does not completely fall apart in the course of this film, although it comes remarkably close about seven times. To explain the plot of this movie, because it's pretty fast, there's a girl whose name is Dorothy, and she has a friend named Edna, and they are store models. Like, they model for a dress shop. They go to Coney Island, and... Oh, well, before they go to Coney Island, they communicate that men are terrible to one another. They do actually communicate very well to each other, Dorothy and Edna. Also, if it weren't for the fact that Edna and Eddie hate each other, his name is Eddie, right? What's his name? Yes, his name is Eddie. <laughs> it just seemed like they shouldn't be named Edna and Eddie, and so I assumed I was wrong. Edna and Eddie would have a way, way better marriage than Eddie and Dorothy have, because like every single time he leaves the room... Edna is, like, doing all of the emotional labor for their fucking marriage and explaining <laughs> to the other one, like, oh, he probably just thinks this thing. You should tell him what is happening. And Dorothy's like, mm, I think instead I'll create an elaborate lie for no reason. <laughs> they go to Cody Island and on their way back, which is on some ferry, all the women are talking about this one guy who for whatever reason, isn't flirting with anyone. So Dorothy decides that she's gonna get him to flirt with her. If you've not seen this film, but you have seen the film Lady Bird, it's basically one-to-one -one when she meets the guy who's reading a People's History of the United States, and he talks about how she's a good girl for not having a cell phone. It's basically just that exact scene. <laughs> but set in 1931 and on a ferry. So Dorothy goes over to play the ukulele? 
which uh, predictably, and I, I think understandably, annoys the crap out of Eddie. But then for some reason, he ends up walking her home. In a jump cut that made me feel like maybe we were watching Skippy again and I had missed something. Because, yeah, it's... I. I'm sorry, I keep, like, going into weird details about this film because this film is all weird details. Because the plot is really a young couple who doesn't know how to communicate with each other meets and gets married and and has a kid. And that's basically the plot action of the entire film. Yes, that's true. So then they go on another date and she ends up hanging out at his apartment past four o'clock in the morning. And she's totally freaked out because apparently she has her older brother beats her or at least threatens to beat her. She's really terrified that he's going to beat her. So Eddie's solution to this is that he's going to propose marriage to her on their second date. Uh... Yeah, she's like, mm-hmm. this sounds great. She's into it. Then he buys, Eddie buys a house for them and doesn't tell her. There's just, there's a whole, there's just so much. And yet. <laughs> and the way that he does it is he buys the house, has Edna arrange all the furniture because she'll know what Dorothy will like and what, how the house should be set up. And then throws a party pretending that it's somebody else's house and shows Dorothy around and is like, isn't it great? Wouldn't you like to live here? And then in the middle of it is like, surprise, actually, I bought the house and spent all of the money that I was going to use to open my own radio shop that you were nervous about me spending on the baby she is pregnant with and has not told him about. (laughs) Right. See, here's the thing. Because of that last detail... I really want to say, like, buying a, a house for you and your wife without telling her and spending all of your savings on it, it's a power move. It's a strong choice, but it is not <laughs> full-on inexplicable. What is full-on inexplicable to me is, after that goes incredibly badly, he goes, mm, still think my wife probably loves surprises, though, so I'm going to get her the best pediatric doctor in the city to to oversee her pregnancy because she's freaked out (laughs) not tell her about it get into prize fights to make some extra money on the side in addition to working extra hours not tell her about any of that either and then even after fucking my kid is born, not go, surprise, because what I've learned is she doesn't like the part where you say surprise. <laughs> so Dorothy is apparently really freaked out about having a kid because her mom died in childbirth. This, of course, she doesn't tell her husband, but tells Edna, and Edna is like, oh, you know, medicine is better now, the hospitals are better, and Edna communicates to Eddie, because again, Dorothy and Eddie can't speak to one another ever, that there's this fancy doctor, who apparently is the obstetrician to kings, Mm -hmm. but the doctor's really expensive. So yeah, Eddie goes and tells the doctor, I've, you know, I've been working extra and I'm, I'm going to be in a prize fight. And then has this really moving emotional breakdown, which this, that was the Oscar bait scene, like a hundred percent. 
that was the Oscar bait scene. Oh, that scene's great. It works. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's like, that's some Frank Capra movie shit. It's great. Again, never has an emotional breakdown or any moment of vulnerability with his wife. Also, for the entire back third of the film, both of them are terrified that the other one will never love their child. And instead of mentioning that to the other one, they just ask random people in stores what they think about people having babies. Like, just at literally... <laughs> ask just people they met five seconds ago like say you th- wives usually end up loving their kids right instead of going like hey should we talk about like this baby we're having for a single solitary <laughs> second of your pregnancy so yeah the prize fight is happening apparently the night that dorothy is going to the hospital to deliver yes <laughs> And his reaction upon hearing this is, oh, that's great. The timing couldn't be better, which (laughs) I strong disagree. But like, I. (sighs) And then he gets in the prize fight and the other fighter is obviously much better than he is. But somehow he manages to communicate to the other fighter that is his wife is about to have a kid and he really needs to make it the four rounds. So please don't knock him out. For a movie that has a like weird sequence about the horrors of poverty, like 10 minutes in, pretty much everyone in this film is nice to poor people. Like, really nice. And so this prize fighter like is like, sure, I'll throw the fight. Let's go to round five. Let's see how this goes. That won't affect my career in any way. And And they basically hug each other through multiple rounds while the other fighter is just chatting with him about being a dad. So Dorothy is getting in the cab to go to the hospital with Edna and is like, well, you know, Eddie just skipped out on me on the day that we're supposed to have a child. He runs and shows up and is like, hey, I, uh, I'm, I'm ready to go. And she says, well, you know, you clearly don't care about me because you've been in some speakeasy. And he says, is that where you think I was? And she says, well, you know, look at your face because his face is all busted up from the prize fight and instead of saying no i was in a prize fight so i could make enough money so that we could afford this doctor so you'd feel safe he's just like so you don't want me to go with you and she's like i don't think you should and closes the cab door drives away (laughs) and then he shouts after Uh, her (laughs) here's the thing that drove me insane is After that happens, they have the kid. He comes in to see her with the baby. She takes everything he says the wrong way. And in her defense, everything he says is incredibly easily taken the wrong way. And you're like, okay, now he's finally going to fucking tell her. He doesn't tell her about how he got that doctor. She fucking gives him an out and goes like, Wow, isn't it weird and incredible that we had the doctor to kings look over our pregnancy? (laughs) And he's like, "Mm, yeah, my boss knew a guy who knew a guy. That guy does charity. Still won't fucking explain what is happening. (laughs) So the thing about the, the hospital sequence, which is like the last, it's basically the third act of the movie, is that while being absolutely infuriating, as most of this movie is, and becomes 
progressively more infuriating. It does manage to really be charming for three reasons. One is that there's a scene of all the expectant dads in the waiting room, which offers some incredible comedic relief. There's one expectant father who's like, somebody asks him if it's his first child, and he's his first and last. I don't think I could ever go through this again. And basically faints when he's told that he has a child. And it's very much played for the laughs of, you know, what what are these dads having to go through? Because it's their wives who are having to have a child. <laughs> and yet they're freaking out. And then there's another one who apparently has, he says, six or seven or eight kids. He's not sure. <laughs> because he knows he has six. But he's not sure if his wife has given birth yet. And so maybe it's seven or eight because it might be twins. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of charming scenes in this movie. And both of the leads are, I think, very good. And I think Edna's great, too. Oh, yeah. At first, I thought like my line on this movie was going to be like, it's weird to watch romantic comedies before we figured out how to make a romantic comedy. And like, that's still pretty much true. But, like, the script is way weirder than that, because it's kind of like, it's weird to watch Frank Capra movies before we knew how to make Frank Capra movies. This (laughs) wants to be a, like, movie about, like, the hardships and foibles of people who are basically going to be alright, because fundamentally they're good people. But, like, sometimes they don't seem like they're very much fundamentally good people, and... Also, all of their problems seem weirdly self-inflicted because the outside world just keeps fucking giving them stuff. Like for a movie where they spend like 40 minutes of the hour and a half runtime stressing about money, money just mysteriously fucking shows up for them again. Just they're constantly like, oh, yeah, I've saved up another 300 bucks from where (laughs) doing what? What is happening? Well, that brings me to the second thing that's charming about the hospital scene, which is not only does the doctor decide that he's not going to charge them anything, he gives them $50 to start a savings account for the kid, which is like, oh, that's really sweet and also would never happen today at all. And then the the third one, just to get through these really quickly... The third one is when Dorothy is recovering, the nurse keeps bringing in these babies and is like, oh, look at this one. Isn't this one so cute? And Dorothy's like, oh, he's beautiful, and reaches out to take the baby. And she's like, no, this isn't your baby. This is Mrs. Williams' baby. (laughs) And does this like four times until when she does finally bring her daughter over and says, isn't this a beautiful baby girl? Dorothy is like, yeah, she's pretty and doesn't reach for her. And the nurse is like, well, this is your daughter. Take her. And that was the moment where I realized that this movie is a farce. And that is the only way that it makes sense is if the whole thing is just farcical. I may. Yes, I think like it ought to be a farce. But like I there's so much in the first half that's like weirdly serious all the stuff with her like abusive older brother slash guardian just her explaining the horrors of everyone in her like tenement building is just like weirdly fucking serious and then yeah by the end you're in this like weird it's like a slamming door farce basically except like nobody's ever slamming doors (laughs) 
everyone is just not communicating with each other and then weird things are happening because they're funny. And they are funny. I think without Edna, this movie would be an extremely dark and depressing chronicle of how poor people live. I mean, without Edna, she would straight up like, there's a sequence where because he doesn't figure out She's in, by the way, a completely random fucking building, not at her own home, the day after they agree that they're going to get married. And, like, when he does not show up within five minutes, Dorothy becomes completely convinced that he is skipping out on her and is never going to show up and she's never going to get married. Without Edna there, she definitely would have, like, gone to the Brooklyn Bridge and jumped off. Like, (laughs) just by lunch. And, like... That happens constantly where they like work themselves into a state about something. And then Edna goes, "Mm, probably he just has to find a cab. And they go, (laughs) oh, yeah. Edna is kind of she's like the nurse in Romeo and Juliet, except that instead of taking a tragic turn, this movie starts tragic and then ends hilarious. Yeah. And also Eddie fucking hates the nurse. (laughs) Um, Yes, there is that too. For no clear reason. Eddie is generally a misogynist and not in the sense of like, he objectifies women and treats them like garbage because he's the only one that's not catcalling them, but more in the sense that he just doesn't like women, period. He's not particularly kind at any point to Dorothy. And in fact, every time that he does try to do something nice for her, he has to mask it with this weird surprise bullshit. And, like, that's kind of generally his thing. There's a scene where he, like, gives 60 cents to a bunch of, like, orphan kids and then pretends like he didn't. And, like, everyone's like, you're such a nice guy. And, like, to a certain degree, like, he is. Like, I expected this to be yet another movie with a fucking bullshit misogynist protagonist who I fucking hated for the entire thing. And, like, I came around on Eddie. He's kind of charming in his fucking stupid, never-explains-anything way. He's kind of a likable, rich character of a sort of misanthropic asshole. (laughs) Yeah, maybe it's not that he's misogynistic necessarily, it's just that he hates everyone. Oh, yeah. And we see him interact with women more than anyone else, so... You definitely get the sense that he is like this with everybody. I mean, I think at one point he even says, like, I would like to be the kind of person that's nice to women, but then my mouth opens and I insult them. (laughs) Like, that's pretty much what you get with the guy, is that, like, he is a big softie, But also the way that he expresses that to the world is by yelling at everyone and refusing to take any credit for doing anything nice ever. It is a huge testament, I think, to Sally Eilers and James Dunn that they make these two characters that a lot of times you just want to take by their shoulders and shake them, that they actually make them likable and sympathetic. In worse hands, I would hate both of these characters, but they have real moments of vulnerability where you're like, there's a lot of hangups that these two people have. And we know a little bit with Dorothy because her mom died in childbirth and she was raised by this abusive brother. Why she has these insecurities and constantly thinks that somebody is going to be leaving her. We don't get that with Eddie, but there's there's something there. We kind of do. We do, we do get that Eddie grew up poor and that that was really fucking shitty for him. And so he is constantly 
worried about that and kind of thinks that the world is a shitty place and doesn't want to bring people into it and doesn't want to take responsibility for other people because shit is tough enough as it is for him, which is some faulty logic that's really only acceptable because it immediately falls apart the moment that they, like, mention a baby. The moment it is mentioned he is going to have a kid, he is, like, stopping people in the radio shop with babies to be like, can I stare at your baby for, like, 12 minutes and ask you questions about what it's like to have babies and what the best parts of babies are? <laughs> and, like, the... the <laughs> Which is adorable. I think it's a weird compliment to this movie that, like, I found it exasperating that they, like, never talked to each other or worked through their issues. Because there's definitely a, like, worse version of this movie where I'm like, oh, fuck the two of you. Like, get a divorce. I don't care. (laughs) I genuinely did want them to be happy because they did a really good job portraying them. And they were, like, interesting characters who had hangups for a reason. And so it was still, like, infuriating that the last 40 minutes of this movie wouldn't have happened if they just fucking talked to each other. But, like, it was infuriating in a way where, like, I felt an emotional connection to them, which is more than I can say for several movies we've watched. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I think one of the things that, for me really demonstrates that I was emotionally invested in these characters and this story, despite how ridiculous it sounds, is that I wasn't looking for things to compliment when we got to this part of the project. Like, I couldn't tell you if the costumes were great. Yeah. I couldn't tell you if the sets were amazing or if the music was good or bad because I actually was here for for the story and for the performances. I think the costumes were probably fine since I don't remember them. I think this may be <laughs> cheating because I know that the director won Best Director for this movie. But I did think this movie was very well composed. Mm -hmm. Like, shot selection was very smart in this, which is a weird thing to say because a lot of it seems, like, bog standard. Like, there's a shot where he is doing dishes in the kitchen and they, like, have the door open to the living room. And it's the exact shot that you see in every fucking sitcom for that scene. And I kind of went like, oh, this is where we set up that shot. Like, this is where we figured out to do that shot that way. And, like, a lot of stuff is just very well shot in a not very showy way. In a just, like, here's the set. You can follow the action very clearly. You know where everybody is. You know why they're kind of, like, you know where they are in relationship to each other. Which sounds very basic and is very basic. But it was at least better than, like, we've watched a lot of movies that have been, like, People come into frame, they sit at the very center of the fucking frame, they talk for five minutes, they get up and leave. These shots were, like, dynamic, people were in interesting places in the frame, like, you really, like, showed off the sets from Mm -hmm. interesting angles. So I did pay attention to that. I don't think I would have thought of it had I not known that the director won Best Director. I think I would have just been like, that was good work. The same way I think with the costumes and the sets of just like, that all worked. I didn't have to think about it. The pacing was generally good too, though I did find this movie really has three acts. There's sort of the, you know, leading up to the proposal, then the marriage and the ridiculous house surprise, and then the pregnancy part. (laughs) Yeah. I did find that the first act was a little 
boring. I had to work pretty hard to be invested in it. Just because I found, I really found Eddie to be very grating. And I was like, really, we're gonna, this is what we're doing is like, we're gonna have this couple happen out of this jerk. But once that we were past that, it really, it moved along at a good clip. Yeah. I mean, it had a three act structure, which is something that I really don't know that I can say about anything else that we've watched thus far. I liked act one a little more than you did. I think mostly just because I really liked the opening sequence. I thought the opening sequence was great. The opening sequence was great. Yeah. You should talk about that. Where you think that she's getting married because she's wearing a wedding outfit, a wedding outfit, a fucking wedding gown. And everyone is kind of making these snide remarks about just like, once you do this a couple times, you get used to it. It's no big deal. If I looked that good in a wedding dress, I'd be wearing it every day. No, no, no. The line, the line that Edna says is, if I looked that good in a wedding dress, I would be a bigamist. Right. And that was when I was like, I like this lady. She's pretty, yes, Edna's solid from fucking scene one. They then go out and they, you kind of see the procession. And then suddenly there's a guy with a drink cart. Like, this was the first, like, showy shot that I was like, oh, the direction in this movie is very good. A guy sort of holding a tray of drinks, like, walks in front of the procession and you're like, that's badly staged. Who are these ass? This is just a weirdly set up wedding vit. And then you suddenly come to understand they're actually in a department store and that this is just a way that the department store is showing off the wedding dress. They're not actually at a wedding. The reveal of it was very clever. What it was was very clever. It's a good, like, reversal of, like, oh, you've come to see this romance movie. Let's start with the wedding. Only we're not doing that. And then when they actually do get married, it's very simple. Like, they just put on their suits and go to City Hall. Yeah. And we don't even see it. And I think, actually, that was something that I appreciated a lot about this movie, was that it trusted the audience to understand that things happened, even if we didn't see them happen on screen. Yeah. There's so much talk about, like, in old movies that, like, you see them leave the apartment, you see them hail the cab, you see them get in the cab, you see the cab leave, you see the cab arrive at the next location, you see them get out of the cab. Like, this movie did not do that bullshit. This movie, like, started scenes went at the last possible moment and ended them the first time it could which was really refreshing it really was yeah the whole wedding scene wedding dress scene it's very quick and they don't go through the entire fashion show they do just enough where some asshole guy hits on her while she's going down the runway and then they cut to the dressing room and it's she's complaining about how guys are the worst and that every time that she's on the subway they start doing stuff with their knees and and then we cut to them coming back from coney island and we just know that they have done these things and there's no need to show us every single bit of it which i appreciate that somebody finally started to trust the audience it also felt like you know this is adapted from a play as a lot of movies we've seen have been it felt like the first one that we've seen where they actually adapted it from a play (laughs) it feels like a modern play adaptation movie where they kind of like added in some extra sets and you could tell where they like that where there was a scene that was set in a previous set so that they didn't have to double up locations where they were like ah let's like push that out and have that be in a new place because we can fucking afford to have there be a new apartment or whatever. 
I could definitely tell that this had been a play, but it ha was adapted from the play a lot more elegantly and intelligently than some of the ones that we've seen that really were just like, well, let's just put this camera down in front of this one fucking set and just see what happens. And just do the play as written. Yeah. And that, it didn't feel that way, which I thought was a huge credit to the screenwriters. I feel like I've, I'm like talking myself into like a higher and higher score for this movie. Should we talk about sc scoring? Yeah, uh, I'm going to give this movie a seven. Yeah, I'm going to give it a seven. I'm I'm like, no debate. Just like, this was solid. I feel like this is not a movie that I would say, like, seek this movie out. But it, this is one where like, hey, if this is playing on like Turner Classic Movies one day, yeah, watch it. Like, if you're, like, flipping through the channels and this thing is on, you should watch this movie. But do not expect a movie that in any way lives up to or conforms to the title Bad Girl. No, there is no Bad Girl. There's not even... I, for a second, I thought... Uh, my dog is flipping out. For a second, I thought that the bad girl of the title was going to be the baby. And then they came out and were like, it's a boy. And I was like, well, there goes that theory. <laughs> this movie is named Bad Girl because I think it's like the prurient interest of, ooh, there's a bad girl in this movie. <laughs> is the best theory I can come up with for why this movie is named that. Um... I tried to find something about the novel or the play because apparently there were a bunch of studios that were interested in, in adapting this but were scared off because of the Hayes office. This is a pre-code movie, but there was still a code in mm -hmm. place pre-code. The Hayes office was like, oh, well, if you make this movie, it's going to be really hard to meet code standards. And I'm wondering, was she worse? By the, you know, late 20s, early 30s mores. Was she in fact pregnant and that is why they got married in the original version? Right. Or or something. <laughs> also, can we take a moment to, to look at the movie poster for this as we're officially saying this has broken the good movie poster curse. Like, there's a good poster for this movie and it's actually a pretty solid film. But also, the poster has absolutely fucking nothing to do with the movie. Oh, not at all. It's really deceiving. <laughs> she never wears a dress that looks anything like that. He's never wearing a tux. Neither of the actors particularly look like that. She's never reclining on what is either red velvet or a red feathered chair that looks like it could be in a burlesque show. <laughs> So there's nothing here. <laughs> this would have been a solid descriptive poster for the divorcee. Oh, absolutely. But it has nothing whatsoever to do with bad girl. <laughs> so it's like, does it break the curse? Right. I get, I like, mm. It's a good poster and it's a good movie. Is it? Oh, and it's a, it's a Fox Pictures film. So congratulations to Disney for now owning this movie. Yes. Good on you guys. Good on you guys. I'm sure that's why you did it. <laughs> and great choice. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I guess it does break the curse because the only the only qualifiers were whether or not the poster was good and whether or not the movie was good, not whether or not the poster was any way related to the movie. I think this means the curse is broken. I don't think it was like the poster gives you a good idea of the film. I think it was just the poster is the poster is good. The movie has to be bad, except apparently it doesn't. So next week, it's five five-star final right yes which is yet another expose about tabloid journalism 
And the last one went so well that I can only imagine how much we're going to love this one. Oh, that was one of my least favorite movies we've watched. I've, it was also one of my least favorite movies that we watched. In fact, pretty much if there's a fucking newspaper in one of these movies, if someone is writing a newspaper, I'm like, well, goodbye. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the front page was pretty terrible, and I hated the racket, which you didn't hate as much as I did, but I don't think you liked it either. <laughs> I didn't I didn't love it, and I was actually thinking of that's really when Cimarron goes fucking completely off the rails. <laughs> it's just the moment they're like, let's start a newspaper. Mm, really? Okay. Cimarron lived off the rails. <laughs> <laughs> that's so fair. Yeah. So yeah, tune in next week to see if the newspaper curse gets broken. (laughs) Until then, this was a movie. It sure was for once. Bye. Bye. Say, beautiful. Doing anything tonight? I'm taking my two pet fish out for a drive. There'll be room for another if you'd care to go. 